Salo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. A very high rate of people being left with permanent disability. The risks are high this winter season for Pacific children catching meningococcal disease. Also, there are a lot of concerns about, about endangered languages in the Pacific. Time is running out for Melanesian languages, according to a researcher. And later on, is geodata the answer for Pacific nations when it comes to coastal resilience? A University of Auckland associate professor says there's concern that cases of meningococcal disease will continue to climb this year. The latest stats by Environmental Science and Research show cases jumped in 2022 by more than 50% when compared to 2021. Pacific and Māori children have three to five times the rate of meningococcal disease than other children. Helen Patusas Harris talks to Caleb Fotheringham about the disease. Firstly, is it okay if you just tell me what meningococcal disease is? The disease arises when a bacteria, the meningococcus, is able to move from the nose and the throat and invade the rest of the body. And it can cause meningitis. It can cause, um, like the bacteremia, where you get, you know, those rashes that you can sometimes see photos of. And sometimes people can present with both of those. Right. And the consequences of the disease is quite severe. Yeah. It's a, look, it's a very rare disease fortunately but it's also potentially very severe with a high fatality rate but also a very high rate of people being left with permanent disabilities. And is there a higher risk of this disease spreading as we head into winter? Yeah one of the things that can increase the risk is when we've got certain viruses circulating so yes it can increase during those months also when people are more likely to be clustered inside and um, having you know crowded conditions etc associated with those things that do increase the risk of the infectious diseases. Right so is it more because people are close together than the temperature getting cooler is that sort of more of the reason? Um, there's actually still a lot that is not well known about what causes this disease to suddenly go from just being a very occasional hum in the background to an epidemic. And it, it's one of those diseases that does have the capability of going epidemic, and that periodically happens. So last year, Māori and Pacifica, they were disproportionately impacted by meningococcal disease. Do you know what the reason is for this? No, look, I don't think we really, we, we do know all of the reasons. Of course, there's the usual contributing factors of being more likely to have living conditions that are, you know, cold and damp and overcrowded. But there's a lot of other things too that might contribute. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a disease that's got quite a kind of a complex range of things and, and some things or a collection of things can serve to trigger an invasive infection in, say, an individual, or um, as well trigger an outbreak of the disease as well. So seeing a lot more cases than you might normally expect. So really tricky, but it's, it's been trending upwards for some time. So it's a significant concern. Right, trending upwards in Māori and Pacifica cases? In everybody, but yes. I mean, Māori and Pacifica certainly absolutely um, carry a huge burden, but this is a disease that can affect, it can affect everybody, or in particular age groups too. So we've got, you know, the kids under five years old, and also there's kind of another high-risk period during adolescence and young adulthood. Okay, and the cases 
and I, you sort of alluded to it before, it's trending upwards in 2021 to 2022 by over 50%. Can we expect another increase this year? I think that's what's got people worried. Um, of course, you know, with the pandemic, like a lot of infectious diseases, we, we saw we saw it drop right away, which is great. Um, but it, it seems to, it, it's looking like the trends are trying to get back on track to where they were and they had been trending upwards for quite some time. So it's a big concern. Yeah, I think it's worth noting, though, as well, 2022 was still less than 2019 previously to the pandemic. That's right. I mean, you know, we really did, did have a little bit of a holiday from some of these diseases. But um, unfortunately, it's, it's trending back on up. So it's concerning. Yeah. Is there anything that we can do to make sure it doesn't continue to trend up? Well, one of the most important things that we can do for a disease like this, and like I said, it is really rare, but when it strikes, it's devastating. Um, we do have effective vaccines. So... I think that's an important uh, consideration is to access the vaccines, which are now funded for a lot of other high-risk uh, groups for this disease. Do you know what the vaccination rate is for meningococcal? No. Look, it's only just been introduced and funded into the program, and I don't know what the uptake of that is looking like at this stage. Anything for for parents and people who are around young children, anything that they can look out for? It tends to present with the classics of flu-like symptoms. And, of course, it's harder in, in real young children who can't sort of tell you how they're feeling. But people might get a headache or a stiff, a stiff neck. People might have a rash start to appear. It can be present in a number of ways, and it can be quite hard early on to diagnose. So if you, you, know, you are concerned, it's best to seek prompt attention. Go to see the doctor. There's a race against time to document Indigenous Creole languages in Melanesia before they evolve or die out. That's according to research fellow at the Australian National University, Kirsty Gillespie, who's documenting Bizlama, which is a variety of Melanesian pidgin, Tokbisin in Papua New Guinea, and pidgin in Solomon Islands. The three languages aren't endangered, but Dr Gillespie says over time there'll be fewer speakers. She spoke with Lydia Lewis about the work. What we're doing is we're recording the three Pacific Creole languages of Tokbisin from Papua New Guinea, Solomon's Pigeon from the Solomon Islands and Bishlama from Vanuatu. We're recording these languages with a view to make mobile phone apps that can be used by the Australian government workers and other people going to Pacific countries and engaging with communities there. Do you see Pigeon as a unifying language? Yes, um, these languages are really interesting. So um, over time, they've changed from pidgin languages to be called creole languages. So um, in the past, we've recognised Melanesian pidgin as, yeah, as you say, it's a unifying language actually between those countries. People can understand each other. Speakers of Tokpisin can understand speakers of Bishlama, for example, and they unify within the countries too. So Papua New Guinea, for example, has more than 800 local languages. So Tokpisin is a language that unifies the people there, that they can speak to each other. They might have different local languages and they live in different parts of the country, but Tokpisin, the Creole language of Papua New Guinea, is a unifying one. All three have different origins. Can you just explain a little bit the nuances and the differences and where they came from? 
Sure. Well, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. There are differences in the history of these different countries, but we could say, generally speaking, that Melanesian pigeon is born of a kind of colonial interactions between English, predominantly English speakers, but speakers of German and in Vanuatu, speakers of French, interacting with islanders, speaking their local languages and finding something in between. So these pidgin languages are fascinating because they might, in often is the case, they might be called like English lexifiers, so the, many of the words might come from English, but they are they're changed in a way to be used within, within the Creole language. And their structure of the language can often reflect the more the local languages side of things. So as you say, it's a real mix of, um, of um, English, some German, some French, some Malay, even different languages that have interacted with those particular countries, often in an employment context. So we talk about uh, plantation labour, and other sorts of work that was happening say, in the 19th century. And then there was a lot of movement of people and importance of interacting with a lot of people from different backgrounds. So that's a really fascinating thing, the background to Melanesian Pigeon. And that's right. With people moving as well out of their villages and moving into city centres, many Indigenous language speakers, like you say, there are hundreds, have moved towards speaking these Creoles, like you say, not they've moved from being pidgin languages to Creoles. Do you have any concerns around Indigenous languages being lost? Yes, there are a lot of concerns about about endangered languages in the Pacific, and linguists have focused a lot on those languages that haven't been documented yet. There are still languages with, with small amount of speakers that... Um, that haven't been documented at all. So uh, it's a bit of a race against time to try and um, and focus on those. And a lot of linguists are focusing on those undocumented languages for those reasons, because after, over time, there'll be less and less speakers of those languages. So they're um, focusing on that. Uh, the interesting thing I will say about the Creole languages, as you describe, people from different language backgrounds are coming together and perhaps being in urban centres. And so these Creole languages, they become Creoles because they become the first languages of people. So I think that's a really important point to make. We've talked about Melanesian pigeons. They've evolved to be Creoles because people are learning to speak those as their first languages now, whereas in the past they might have already had a couple of other languages before they acquired pigeon in terms of interacting with other people. You do see a lot of code switching as well. So people use, might have half the sentence in the Creole language and then they might speak in their local language or they, draw, or they bring their local language into the vocabulary of the Creole. So it's just a really fascinating thing that's happening. But languages are dynamic and changing all the time. So we do need to document what's happening and that's what we're trying to do with our project. Do you acknowledge the colonial, I guess, origins of these? And have you found throughout this research anyone detesting or a frustration with the origins, where they came from, and I guess wanting to wanting more research or wanting to speak or wanting to hear all these indigenous languages, even though there are just so many? That's a really good question. So I think, um, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, people really use and own these languages as their own anymore. They don't think about the colonial origins of them terribly much. You know, it's 
the linguist who might look closely at the origin of particular words and say, oh, that word comes from German and that one comes from here or there. There is a bit of a stigma around using Creole languages in official contexts, for example, like the, and there are ongoing debates about using Creole languages in schooling. Uh, so there is, in some areas, there is a kind of lack of respect of Creole languages as actual um, languages, and that and that can be difficult for um, you know new generations who might. Um, that might be their first language and it might in some cases be their own language that they the only language that they feel competent and fluent in too so um, you know that people do really need to I, I would like to think that people could come to respect these um, Creole languages as um, actual languages um, themselves and and to see their value in them and I think that's where we are at at the moment with our um, project being funded by the Australian government um, you know, people can see that these are the languages that are being used on the ground, particularly in kind of disaster or crisis situations where, you know, other governments come and, and respond and support. You know, for example, in Vanuatu, we had Cyclone Judy and Kevin that came, you know, within 48 hours of each other um, just, um, just this last um, March. And I was there in April, so people were talking a lot about that. And so, um, you know, we can we can recognise that we can use these languages, you know, that these are very useful languages um, in those sort of interactions. So, you know, I hope that people can come to look past all that kind of colonial and the stigma around the Creole languages and see how useful and fun they are to speak um, and learn. Computerized geographical data or geodata is playing a crucial role in helping low-lying Pacific Island nations adapt to the impacts of climate change. In Tuvalu, one of the world's most vulnerable island nations, a coastal adaptation project is developing innovative coastal protection solutions. Implemented by the United Nations Development Program and in partnership with the Tuvalu government, Geodata specialist Fugro has leveraged airborne light detection and ranging technology to capture precise coastal data, supporting adaptation planning for the future. Kuroi Hawkins spoke with Fugro Asia Pacific Director for Hydrography and Coastal Resilience, Paul Seaton, who says understanding the risks associated with climate change and sea level rise requires effective long-term monitoring of coastlines. Uh, so it, it's quite surprising that at the moment there is very little detailed or, or accurate measurement of land height uh, for most of the, uh, the adult nations in the Pacific region. Indeed, uh, most of the Pacific Island nations uh, have got very little uh, inf information. We all know that sea level is rising. We all know that, uh, that climate change is, is affecting uh, our lives uh, and we're seeing uh, more severe storm conditions and, uh, and wave inundation uh, than we have done in the past. Uh, so uh, having that crucial piece of information, that missing piece of the puzzle of, of understanding of, of what the, the, the near shore seafloor environment is like uh, and what the land height is like uh, is, is really critical to us uh, being able to, to understand that. So uh, what we've been doing is we've been working with, uh, with, with various uh, island states, uh, most recently with, with Tuvalu uh, and the UNDP, and we've been collecting uh, LIDAR data for them. So LIDAR stands for Light Detection and Ranging. Uh, and the way in which that works is uh, we fly a, a, an aircraft, a small aircraft, uh, over the adults and we uh, collect 
uh, information from the, the LIDAR system. So we fire the laser down. Uh, and when the laser uh, hits uh, the, the surface, it, it bounces back. Uh, and we're able to uh, accurately measure uh, the, either the land height uh, or the depth of the water using that technology. And in the case of Tuvalu, how, how did that translate those measurements? How did they translate that to actions in terms of their policies? Uh, Tuvalu is, uh, is a really good example uh, of what can be done uh, in dealing with, uh, with, with sea level rise and, uh, and, and using uh, information to be able to, uh, to, to make changes. So Tuvalu uh, went about collecting the data as part of the, uh, the Tuvalu Coastal Adaptation Program. So that's a, it's a long-term program that has been led by the government of Tuvalu uh, together with uh, the UNDP with funding from uh, the Green Climate Fund. Uh, and they've been identifying measures that they can take to uh, preserve uh, critical infrastructure and, and, and people's homes uh, and, and assets in, in Tuvalu itself. So uh, to, to be able to make those decisions on, and, 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 and work out what measures uh, can be taken to, to preserve uh, the communities of Tuvalu, they first needed the information to be able to make those right decisions. So uh, it, it quite surprisingly, uh, Tuvalu didn't know what the land height was uh, across uh, most of, uh, of the islands. It was, it was there for or most of the atolls. Uh, it was there for a, a few places, but really not in the detail to enable uh, coastal engineers to, to plan what they can do to, to mitigate against the effect of, of climate change. So it really has given them the information that they need to make the, the critical decisions that are required now. In terms of the the measurements and the findings in in um, sure. again sticking with Tuvalu, what what were what were some of the data that maybe was stood out for you or was unusual or unique to Tuvalu's situation? Uh, unfortunately, Tuvalu uh, isn't it uh, isn't isn't unique for for many of the uh, the Pacific Islands or, or the coastal communities. So about forty percent of uh, of the world's population lives. Uh, within uh, within 100 kilometres uh, of, of the coast, uh, and about 10% of people live uh, no higher than 10 metres uh, above sea level. But when we get to the Pacific and, and the island states, uh, about 95% uh, of the communities uh, will be affected by, by sea level rise and, and climate change. So it's, it's not unique uh, in, in that sense. There are five atoll nations on the planet, and four of them are in the, are in the Pacific. Uh, and prior to this project, uh, none of them had been adequately mapped. So uh, the UNDP and the Tuvalu government put together a program where we collected the data, where we were able to measure from the edge of the reef over all of the land uh, of, of Tuvalu and, and were able to give uh, them the, the, the information that they need to be able to, uh, to, to make what mitigation measures have to be taken or, or, or can be taken. And there's a range of things. So there's, uh, there's beach nourishment programs where they're uh, reclaiming sand from the, the lagoons. Uh, and by capturing those measurements, we're able to identify where the sand was, and that's going to be used to raise uh, the, the land height in, in areas uh, which will preserve uh, parts of Tuvalu uh, well into to, to 2100. Now, to, to put that into, um, in, into perspective, uh, very little uh, of, of Tuvalu won't be affected uh, by, by that uh, by, by that time frame. So yeah, by, by 2050, uh, we know that about half the, the land area of the capital will be flooded by tidal waters on a, on a regular basis. Uh, but by 2100, uh, about 95% of the land will face flooding by, uh, by routine high tides. So it's critical uh, that we increase the land height or we, we put in other measures 
Uh, we can put in natural measures such as uh, uh, you know they're planting mangroves to to protect coastlines, uh, but you know, sea walls and, and and other physical uh, barriers will will have to be put in place to to ensure that uh, homes and infrastructure is uh, uh, will be safe. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. You can also download us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts from. So for myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, till fast before.